0: Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 29 and 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet But they even shouted more loudly, Have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Jesus stood still and called them, saying, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Reading from the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience.
1: you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The, um, the hymn we just sang, Amazing Grace. You all know it. Um, you've all heard it literally countless times because you know, it's, it's the one you play at every funeral. Uh, you hear it in worship all the time. It makes its way into movies and TV. It's on the radio. People have done complete revisions of it where they've added words to it, right? It's one of the most famous hymns of all time. It was written by Reverend John Newton. And um, John Newton was a priest in the Church of England in the 18th century. But before he was a priest in the Church of England, he was the captain of a slave ship. And so for much of his adult life, he sailed to the coast of Africa, picked up a load of slaves, sailed them to the Caribbean, sold them off, and repeated the process. And it was after his conversion experience to the faith that he abandoned that life. And it was as he was reflecting on the quite literally amazing grace of the God who saved him that he wrote those words. He was, uh, in addition to being a priest in the Church of England, he was one of those weird people called Methodist. Um, He was influenced not only by John and Charles Wesley, but also by, uh, well, every other member of that movement that took place. And he aside from writing this hymn, had one other outsized impact on history. see, there's a young man named William Wilberforce who was sent by his very, very wealthy parents to live with his aunt and uncle just outside the town of London. And um, you know, at the time, Methodists were not widely accepted in society. Right? We were the weirdos. Okay? We were in that day and age what the people dancing with the snakes on their heads are to us now. They were not accepted. They were, right. Religion in England in the 18th century was shallow. It was uh, kind of devoid of passion. There was a general assumption amongst the clergy of the Church of England that things like miracles and resurrection shouldn't be talked about because they probably weren't real. All a result of the Enlightenment age. And so, on top of that, you have a, a, a priesthood that just decides to not do much with their churches. You come to church, you show up, you hear the sermon, it's probably not going to be all that interesting. (laughs) Aren't y'all lucky you have me instead? (laughs) You kneel for your prayers, you stand up for your prayers, you sing the song, you go home, and your life is otherwise no different than it would have been had you not gone to church. And then the Methodists came along and uh, challenged all of that. And so especially amongst the high society, the the nobility, the wealthy people of England, they were reviled and and considered absolute freaks and unintelligent. And so uh, if William Wilberforce's parents had known his aunt and uncle were Methodists, they probably wouldn't have sent him to stay with them. Because as he's sitting in their home, the Reverend John Newton would come often and lead services and devotionals in their house. And when his parents learned that he was being influenced by those weird Methodists, Uh, They took him home right away. And then they spent the remainder of his formative years doing everything they could to uh, disabuse him of all the notions that those Methodists taught him, like love and compassion and grace and mercy, and actually making your faith mean something in your daily life. And they succeeded. And he became just like every other young, wealthy Englishman, except that he was unusually smart. A genius, actually. And by the age of 24, he was a member of parliament. And not just a member, but holding the single most influential seat in the House of Commons, representing the most populous county in the nation. He's 24 years old. Best friend of the Prime Minister, William Pitt, who was also 24 years old. Um, Which seems like a bad idea, doesn't it? I was 24 once. I know what I was like then. I wouldn't have made a good political leader. But see, these two men had, had for the last several years, been uh, staunchly and loudly opposed to all of the policies of the Prime Minister who led England through the American Revolution. And as that war was drawing to a close and it became abundantly clear that England wasn't going to win it, the political wind shifted. And the two people who had been loudest in opposition to all the policies that led them to disaster suddenly seemed pretty smart. So they were given massive amounts of power. And shortly after that, Wilberforce took a vacation in the south of France, which in that day meant he had to sail across the English Channel and then take a carriage ride from one end of the continent down to the other. And on the way, he was in the carriage with a man named Milner, who was his former school teacher, and who now was a clergyman in the Church of England, and who, by the way, just happened to be another Methodist. We are everywhere. We're like cockroaches. And on the way, they begin talking about, and and Wilberforce is not uh, an especially emotional guy, but he's a very logical, intelligent man. And over the course of this carriage ride, he's convinced that the Methodists are right. And he has a conversion experience. And he begins to live out his faith quite differently. And, And now the Methodists have someone at the highest levels of government, right? We infiltrate. I'm telling you, we're like cockroaches. After that, he meets the abolitionists for the first time. Now you have to understand, if people thought the Methodists were crazy, people thought the abolitionists were far worse. See, by this point in history, for 5,000 years, and quite likely a lot longer than that, slavery is just a part of the world. It's not something you tolerate, it's not a necessary evil, it's just how the world works. You can't have an economy without slavery, it doesn't work. How could you possibly make a country work without putting it on the backs of slaves? Every civilization that had ever existed up to that point embraced slavery. The very notion that it was a moral evil that should be eradicated did not exist in the minds of the general public. But something's different this time around. Because now there's Methodists involved, right? You're welcome, world. They begin to put together a plan for how they're going to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. And it starts by collecting eyewitness accounts of how the slaves are treated on the plantations in the Caribbean and how they're treated on the slave ships. How they're beaten and tortured and abused. And how as that goes on, the plantation owners and the slave traders live lives of unimaginable luxury. And it becomes apparent to them that no one in England is aware of this. Because you see, while all that was happening, there weren't really slaves on the British Isles at that point. They were all in the Caribbean on the plantations growing sugar. And people weren't aware of what was going on. So when he made his speech in 1791 to the British Parliament and laid out all these stories and accounts of the abuse, the thing he said to them was, having heard all this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can no longer say that you did not know. But it would still be 16 more years before they passed the Slave Trade Act and abolished the buying and selling of slaves and the capture of slaves. And it would be years longer after that before the actual institution of slavery in the British Empire was destroyed. And as we all know, it would take even longer for that same thing to happen in the United States. But you see, what he did, the lasting impact that he had wasn't so much the abolition of the slave trade as the abolition of the idea that slavery was okay. Okay. For 5,000 years, people just accepted it. And along comes one man who leads a movement and says, actually, it's not. Now, slavery still exists in our world, but you won't find anybody defending it anymore, will you? We accept as a rule, on the whole, that it's a moral evil that should be eradicated because of him. Because his faith would not allow him to sit back and do nothing. One of his best quotes is this. No one expects to attain the height of learning or arts or power or wealth or military glory without vigorous resolution, strenuous diligence, and steady perseverance. Yet we expect to be Christians without labor, study, or inquiry. It ran contrary to the conventional wisdom of his day, but it's true. We still do this, by the way, don't we? We still expect to be able to call ourselves Christians and live a Christian life just by showing up to church on Sunday morning, hearing our really handsome pastor give a good sermon. Maybe go do a Bible study here. And, but, but what happens if we ask you to go and do more? We may even want to serve people, right? Do nice things for them, but we very rarely want to make friends with them, to sit with them, to talk to them. Do you notice that after Jesus heals those two men, gives them their sight back, they follow him? He doesn't just heal them and then walk away. They come with him. He brings them along. They're part of his entourage now. we're really good at pity. We're good at pitying people. We're good at at seeing someone's condition and feeling sorry for them and thinking, wouldn't it be nice if someone would do something for them? That would be great. Or we're really good at, at looking at them and seeing their condition and maybe donating something, handing them something, and then walking away. And we like to think that that's compassion. It's not. It is, at best, pity. See, Christianity is, uh, is often treated as this thing where we, we just get to come to church, act virtuous, behave in a certain way, and we're all good. But what Paul is teaching the Colossians in his letter is that Christianity is not about just uh, adding things on top of who you already are. It's about stripping away all that came before and adding on the virtues of Christ. Jesus, in this story, is on his way to the cross. He's going to Jerusalem for the last time. He knows exactly what's waiting for him there. And even as he is marching to his own death, he stops and has compassion on these two men by the side of the road who are crying out for mercy. He has compassion on them. He heals them. And he brings them along for what little time he has left. All before the ultimate act of compassion. When he would willingly go to the cross for us. See, that's compassion. But again, we tend to confuse it with pity. See, what happens is pity, pity is not an action. Pity is a feeling, it's something you feel. Pity doesn't do anything. Pity watches what compassion does. Compassion moves you to act. Pity spectates. Compassion is in the game. The world that the Apostle Paul lived in was not a very compassionate one. It was common practice if you were unfortunate enough to have an unwanted child, to take that child outside the limits of the city and leave them in the wilderness, hoping they would die from exposure to heat or cold or to the wild animals that were out there. And in times of plague and famine, the rate of child abandonment would go through the roof. So one of the earliest ministries of the church was to wander those hillsides outside the city and listen for the cries of those abandoned infants and find them and take them home and raise them as their own and give them the love and the care that every child needs. It became such an important part of the life of the church that one Roman historian even commented that, that those crazy Christians, they take care of their poor and our poor. They don't just take care of themselves. They reach out to us even though we're persecuting them. They come and they save our infants from certain death. And is it any wonder that the church grew by leaps and bounds every single day? Compassion is a central part of what Christianity is. And the thing is, Christianity without compassion is actually dangerous. Because even as Wilberforce was leading the charge to abolish slavery, there were plenty of people twisting the words of Scripture to justify its continued existence. If you have faith without compassion, it leads you down a dangerous road. The one thing I've heard over and over again, as I've been here with this church, is there is so much desire to, to do something new, right? To, to spark new life into the church. Let me tell you something. If you want to breathe new life into a church now, in this day and age, you have to be doing things that people don't see anywhere else. Because let's be honest, they can come and get a motivational talk anywhere in the world now. They can come and hear great music all over town. They can come and they can find fellowship at almost any other organization, right? The things that the church has traditionally relied upon to get people in the doors and get them to stay, they're not unique to us. You can get pity anywhere, pity's all over the place. But the only people who can offer the kind of compassion that changes the world of the people in our churches. You know, the the single most reliable way to lift a person out of poverty is friendship with someone who is not living in poverty. Nothing else really works in the long run. A few years ago, we had a a man in, in our church at the time uh, his name was David. David worked as a cashier at the local grocery store. He's middle-aged, um, never educated. I'm not entirely sure uh, he could read all that well. Uh, he, he could read some words, but maybe not all of them. He was sort of um, constantly right on the edge of homelessness. Right, it, it was the sort of deal where, like, if he didn't get a paycheck that week, he would probably lose his apartment. Uh, David was married. And one week, he, he called me up and said, my wife's kicked me out of the apartment. I never knew why. Um, but here was his problem. If he didn't have a place to live, he didn't have a place to rest. He didn't have a place to stay close to where he worked. He didn't have a car. He couldn't drive anywhere. Right? He relied on being close to work to get there on time. If he couldn't get to work on time, he'd lose his job, and then he'd be in a real problem. Fortunately for him, he was in one of our small groups at the church, and he called up people in that group, and they took him in and let him stay with him. And then as they were trying to help him find an apartment, they realized he had no idea how to make a budget. He didn't know how to track his expenses and his income and figure out what he could actually afford. He just had no concept of it. And so they sat down, and they they taught him how to evaluate his income and, and track his expenses and figure out what he could actually afford. They helped him find a place to stay. See, if he didn't have, have friends, he would have been homeless, just like that. But because he knew people who had compassion on him, he was okay. See, that's what compassion does. That's what compassion means to people. We tend to think of compassion as this like soft, mushy, touchy-feely kind of thing. It's not. It's a fierce and fiery force. Compassion has changed the world more radically, more powerfully, and more frequently than any army ever has, than any politician ever has, than any economic policy ever has. It is more influential than anything else in this world. Precisely because of the power it has to swing people's lives in the complete 180. Paul uses this language of, of taking off the old and putting on the new, right? Almost like you're changing your dress. He tells his people to put on compassion. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty series on this one verse because he gives all these little virtues he thinks Christians should have, but compassion is the first one because they lived in a compassionless world. And the world is not so different today. Whatever else you do this week, Put on compassion. Not the soft, mushy, touchy-feely stuff, but the world-changing force, the thing that alters people's lives irrevocably for the better. Now, if you need help doing that, if you need help motivating yourself to be that way, if you need help even figuring out what it means for you to show compassion to others, spend some time reflecting on the God who was... So compassionate for you that he went to the cross. Who had so much compassion for his children that even as his hands were being nailed into the wood, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Perhaps remember the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.